Welcome to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, it is the first in our, I don't know, long series on nihilism. At least we have it planned to be long. We'll see how it goes. In this first episode, uh, we're going to discuss the quote-unquote birth of nihilism. We'll talk about what that means uh, in a few minutes. Really, our question is here, first, how do we define nihilism? What does it mean? That's really what we're trying to establish here. Nihilism comes from the Latin root nihil, which means nothing, combined with the Latin ismus, which means a system or a principle. You've probably heard the Latin nihil in words like annihilation uh, as an example. Um, so it's essentially the belief in nothing, though that's a far too simplistic definition for various reasons. Which what about isthmus? About. I thought that was like a little piece of land from like geography class yeah. between like, so what's what's Same. the real, what's the real uh, 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 Latin word there? Well, isthmus is not I-S-M-U-S. Oh, okay. Isthmus has like a T and an H in it. I okay. Think. I don't know. I was just checking in. Yeah. All right. <laughs> As author mm-hmm. Karen L. Carr points out in her book, The Banalization of Nihilism, she says, quote, the term nihilism widely used in the last two centuries has no universally agreed upon definition. And without exception, nihilism is portrayed as a monolithic phenomenon, which has not changed since its discovery, uh, end quote. But that's a problem. And it's what she sets out in her book really to uh, discuss. So we think of nihilism as like nihilism is X. It's this one thing. But we have to accept the fact and try to explore that uh, that is not the case. Um, Even at the Oxford English Dictionary, which is basically like the go-to for definitions, has seven different definitions for nihilism. And the one that it touts as sort of the modern definition refers specifically to metaphysical nihilism, which definitely is not the most widely used definition today. So even the Oxford English Dictionary is uh, not really... Is sort of ambiguous when it comes to defining nihilism. So like I said, we can't really just say, well, nihilism is X, like let's pack up and go home. That's what it is. It's a really like amorphous sort of uh, concept that has evolved over time and has meant different things in different eras, which is what we really want to explore here. Um, we're going to sort of do like a genealogy of nihilism, starting with its quote unquote birth, uh, modern nihilism, and leading up to today, hopefully. Um, this sort of makes sense that there is no one monolithic definition of nihilism because there is no one universal quote-unquote nothing. That the nothing is always reflective, a contradiction of a something, right? And so like I like to use the metaphor of a cave, which seems like if I asked you what is a cave, you could come up with some kind of definition. But the point is, is the cave the void or is the cave the surrounding, let's use, say, rock in this case, right? These are two very different things, but they're reliant upon one another and they cannot exist without one another. It's impossible to describe the void without referring to the qualities of the surrounding rock. So, now yeah, you have, you have the actual physical part and then you have the negation of the physical part, but still tied back to that physical part, exactly. right? Like, so that's, yeah. Yep. And if the concrete, of the cave, like the concrete surrounding changed, then the cave, the void itself would also change. So this is the same is true for like nihilism, right? We can't describe what the belief in nothing means without discussing the something of any given era. Um, And as the something, the material world of any given era changes, then very clearly the nothing, the concept of nihilism in that era would change as well. Like I said, there's no universal nothing that really spans time and space. That's not a thing. Except in the never-ending story. 
That's true. That's funny. We were looking at movies to watch with uh, my daughter the other day, and that one came up. We haven't watched it yet. But, but even that, the, the nothing in that very famous 80s film is still defined by uh, that like very rich universe that they create with you know the rock guy and all that mm-hmm. all that is how you define the nothing the nothing is the negation of that so yeah exactly um yeah so we're doing sort of a genealogy of nihilism the goal is to start at the quote-unquote beginning and then move all the way into the modern time this is the planned series how i have it planned to go just so our listeners are aware it might change at any time based on what i feel like talking about uh, is the answer the first, this episode, we're talking about the birth of modern nihilism, specifically German idealism with Fichte and Jacobi. Then we're going to go into Russian nihilism and talk about uh, fathers and sons and perhaps what is to be done, etc. And definitely uh, an episode probably on Russian nihilism. Then we're going to talk about egoism, Max Stirner and his work. Then finally, we'll get to Nietzsche, which obviously we can't have a conversation about nihilism without talking about that extensively. We'll do an episode on German nihilism, so the Nazis and the concept of the Ubermensch and etc. Then we'll spend some time uh, post-World War II talking about existentialism and absurdism, so Heidegger, Sartre, Camus, and so forth. And then we'll get into some more modern uh, manifestations of nihilism. So we might touch on Alison Escalante's gender nihilism, which I absolutely love as an example here of an important part of sort of the genealogy of nihilism. And um, anarcho-nihilism, for sure. So the book, Blessed is the Flame, and so forth. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a general outline. Like I said, it could change at any time. We might add or remove things or whatever uh, based on what we feel like. But that's kind of uh, where we're headed. So anything to add before we get started? No. Does it even matter? No, none of this matters, mm-hmm. uh, clearly. Um, I do want to just preface this episode by saying that it's sort of like a preface to our real conversation about nihilism. Most people, when they talk about nihilism, really start with Russia and revolutionary nihilism. Most people don't go back to German idealism, but I think it's important that we do so. It's important to sort of know how this term was first used, uh, really. That's not to say it was first used ever in the history of humanity in German idealism, but that was really... Uh, the first time that most or, people are modern to. incarnations. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <clears throat> so the term nihilism is really used for like the first time in a modern um, manifestation in a letter from the philosopher Frederick Jacobi to the philosopher Johann Fichte, March 6th, 1799. So I'm going to read the sentence where he uses the term, and then we're going to break down exactly what he is critiquing because he uses it as a pejorative. Um, He says, truly, my dear Fichte, I would not be vexed if you or anyone else were to call chimerism the view I oppose to the idealism that I chide for nihilism. So Fichte is saying that the idealism, or sorry, Jacobi is saying that specifically the idealism of Fichte uh, equates to nihilism. So we're going to break down what Fichte's idealism is and how Jacobi critiques it, how it can be defined as a nihilism. So what is this idealism? We really have to pick up with the German idealists, um, in this case of the late 18th century, but we're going to skip a lot of them. So we could talk about like Descartes and Barclay and Kant, 
but we're not going to do that. We're going to skip those uh, for simplicity's sake because we really just need to talk about Fichte. Kant will probably come up a little bit, etc. cetera. Uh, but we're going to fast forward to Johann Fichte. Where does Hegel figure into this? Because uh-huh. when you use the word idealism, and 100%. since we've done episodes yeah. on this in the past, our, 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 our listeners and watchers might be wondering, where does this historical idealist Hegel yep. fit into this? Hegel's after Fichte. Okay, So cool. in like the lineage of German idealism, Hegel is after Fichte, which is actually really interesting because once I started doing research on this, I learned that Fichte is like one of the most influential idealists as far as influencing was, which influencing what was to come, i.e. Hegel. And in all of my learning of Hegel and Kant and everything, I had honestly never even really thought much about Fichte at all. He's okay. not mentioned a lot. I guess he's like kind of lesser known, but one of the most influential. And Hegel's thinking is a direct, like I said, lineage of uh, Fichte. Hegel was a student of Fichte's, actually. Um, I can't remember which university it was, but yeah, anyways. I just needed that context because I'm yeah. used to hearing like Hegel is like like this father of idealism, mm-hmm. but I kn- but no idea comes from like out of nowhere, especially exactly. in his belief system. Yeah. He had to be inspired, so I was just trying. He to... He actually writes directly about Fichte's idealism, cool. which I didn't know either until I started learning about this stuff. Honestly, I wish I think that most people should start if they're going to start learning about idealism, and you don't want to go back to like Descartes and Berkeley and Kant and you think you're going to start with Hegel, I would encourage everyone to actually start with Fichte. Just gain a general knowledge of like what Fichte was about, because I wish that I would have done that because it would have made Hegel make much more sense now that I know about Fichte. Yeah, we started with Hegel and yeah. yeah. Fichte is notoriously difficult to understand, um, as is Hegel. So I think if you start with Fichte, Hegel makes a little more sense, at least in theory. That's what I've found to be true now that I know about Fichte. Okay. We're really talking about consciousness and the origins of consciousness, the I, the self, the ego, etc. That's really the issue taken up by German idealism in general. So Fichte sees that there are two approaches to consciousness, really. Um, He says that first there are the materialists or the realists who begin with material objects things as their point of departure and seek to explain how consciousness arises from concrete physical objects. Next, there are the idealists who begin with the self as their point of departure and seek to explain the existence of things, of objects, as the result of an independently thinking self. So, Most people today, without ever realizing it, uh, really are probably materialists. They're realists, meaning that they believe the material world to be real and independent of the existence of consciousness. That is, the material world, material things, would exist whether or not there were conscious beings around to experience it. Overwhelmingly, people, uh, like I said, without really thinking about it, if you're not a philosopher, probably believe that, right? Like, we would argue that right this pen exists whether or not jared or i or any other conscious being was here to experience it and most people are like well yeah that's common sense clearly that would be the case not so for the idealists who are exploring this question and philosophically we do have to admit that the materialist way of thinking does pose some real Mm -hmm. insurmountable philosophical problems when we are trying to explain consciousness. And this is one of Fichte's points. Mainly how. How does the material world, i.e. atoms, etc., result in consciousness, in awareness, in ego, in I, in the self, etc.? Presumably there was a time in history of the universe in which there was no consciousness. And then like, boom, all of a sudden, 
there were conscious beings who were self-aware. How could this possibly happen? How can physical matter be accompanied by or result in consciousness, right? This is now referred to in modern philosophical uh, philosophy of consciousness as the hard problem of consciousness. How does physical matter result in experience and consciousness? So this is a real problem that can't be answered by the materialists, at least um, according to Fichte's argument. Fichte refers to the materialists pejoratively as dogmatists. He's implying that there's no real defensible aspect of this position. In short, how can thinking, how can the thinking I result from inanimate objects? Fichte says that's absolutely impossible, and anyone who believes in that is a dogmatist, uh, basically saying like there's no, there's no defensing that position uh, at all, philosophically. Though wouldn't the materialist also argue it's not just the inanimate objects, it's how an organism interacts with those inanimate objects over time that kind of spurs that interaction, and maybe from that interaction is where this consciousness grows from. But even then, they're still making... It, yes, it's, you're right. It's not just the objects, it's their interaction, but even the interaction is happening like on the physical realm, right? Right. How does that purely physical occurrence with those purely physical beings give birth to this thing that is not purely physical, at least in theory, right? This, this consciousness, this existent experience, etc. Right. I That's mean, obviously, we would go through like an evolutionary process mm -hmm. and like what level of consciousness we're talking about, depending on what organism we're talking about. He's obviously most concerned with humanity, but right. yeah. Yep. There's another issue too, though, that aside from this like hard problem of consciousness is, which Fichte is really concerned with, and it has to do with freedom. If the realists, the materialists are correct, then all consciousness is produced by real, the real, real objects, etc. Think of nature, the natural world, and so forth. Therefore, it is wholly restricted and determined by it. And as a result, according to Fichte's logic, Man has no freedom whatsoever because our very existence, the ego that we have, our self-awareness is a result of the physical world and dictated by the natural laws of the physical world. So essentially we are no free. We are not free. Our entire existence is predetermined by the natural world. Now that's a huge problem for Fichte who is interested in exploring freedom and what does that look like and etc. If the idealists, we'll come back to this uh, in a little bit. If the idealists are correct, then the real world does not exist at all metaphysically and there are only subjects and no objects. If we take idealism to its extreme, then metaphysically, the real world does not exist. Things only exist in our minds. So the pen does not exist, continuing our example, if there are no conscious beings to experience it and nothing does that's a jump that most people like cannot get on board with because it doesn't it's not doesn't make common sense right go ahead i don't know that i have a lot i am one of those 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 uh, mm -hmm. uh, unwashed masses that would also not agree to that and it comes to an example that maybe we'll get to a little bit later maybe we can get to it right now like we had a discussion um last week you and i regarding um uh, uh, fossils, for example, like, like if there were fossils buried somewhere of this dinosaur or mammoth or whatever, and like no one ever dug them up, do they exist? Right. And that's kind of that question. I would argue they still exist. And, and maybe that's because I'm a dogmatist, mm -hmm. but do I need to experience those fossils for them to exist? Like, and I would argue, no, I don't need to experience well, those or another conscious yeah, another being. Person, yeah. Another right? conscious being does not need to experience those fossils buried, you know, whatever. 
pick a place. Like no one needs to experience those for them to actually be exi- – and that's where I maybe fall into like that dogmatist thinking. Right. And I'm willing to admit that, but like what would – I guess that's where we're going. What would Fichte say to that? He would not answer that because it's inconsequential for Fichte's thought, which I'll get to in a second. Okay. He – we'll get to this in a second. He is not a metaphysical idealist. That's the, that's the answer. Okay. He doesn't actually think that the real world doesn't exist at all. But we'll get to that in a second. Only the most like absolute idealists would think that the real world doesn't exist. Although now that I think about that, absolute idealism is really credited to Hegel. And we could argue whether or not he was a metaphysical um, absolute idealist. But that's in that we're getting sidetracked. We'll come back to your question in a second. Okay. It'll make sense. Kant now enters the picture here. He proposes sort of a middle ground in which the subject can only experience reality, that is, real objects, through perception. So Kant argues that conscious beings can't actually experience the real quality of real material objects. We can only know what we know about them through our perception. We can only know what we perceive but we cannot know the true qualities of a material object. So for Kant, he sort of bridges this gap by saying, the real world does exist, but there is some aspect of it that we cannot know because as conscious beings, we can only experience the real world through our perception of it. Therefore, we only ever experience our perception. We never actually experience the real world. We only experience it through our perceiving. So things in themselves do exist, but we can't know everything there is to know about them. So this is Kant's sort of middle ground. That's really all we're going to talk about Kant, even though we could do six hours on that, because Fichte then picks up from there. So Fichte claims to be a descendant of Kant's thinking, but essentially claims that Kant didn't go far enough. So this is where Fichte aims to resolve the impasse between idealism and materialism. And he does this by sort of inventing a third quote-unquote tier beyond the subject and the object. So for Fichte, it's not just about conscious self-perceiving beings and the material objects. For Fichte, there is a third, I'm using the word tier right now. We'll talk about this more in a second. There's something beyond those two things. He suggests that there must be some plane, some tier, which is not limited by the material world, which can contain or posit, right, be aware of both the subject, the consciousness, ego, the I, the self, and the object, i.e. the material world, the not I, and other egos, etc. So I'm going to use a quote here from Michael Gillespie, who wrote a book, uh, Nihilism Before Nietzsche, where he talks about Fichte. He says, the not I is real and restricts the empirical I, but it is not and cannot restrict the absolute I. So he gives us some of Fichte's terms here. So I'm going to break this down. For Fichte, there is the what he calls empirical I. This is what we're all used to talking about when we talk about ego. This is our concept of self. It's our self-perceiving self. That is the empirical I. The not I is reality. 
it is everything that is not the ego. So it is like the desk and the apple and the pen and etc. And it is every other I. So like you are my not I, right? Like I have I, I have self-perception. You are an example of a not I for me and I am not I for you and the desk is not I for both of us and so forth, right? But then Fichte comes up with the third. He says there is an absolute I that exists beyond every empirical I and every not I. Okay, I don't expect you to fully understand what that means right now. I'm just laying out the terminology. Let's go into Fichte's three main principles that he lays out for explaining his theory here. Go ahead. In that one concept, he sounds like a Sufi. In that so one, it's interesting because I have a lot about Buddhism here in a second. Uh, yes. Yeah, he sounds like a Sufi there in that, like, of course, their, their goal is to abolish or annihilate that I mm -hmm. um, to achieve, of course, liberation, for lack of a better term, right. which he's talking about lack of freedom. So it's just super interesting. I'm not accusing it. I would never say he's a Sufi in any yeah. other capacity, right. but that one thought is very Sufist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The difference is perhaps that he thinks it's not possible ever to achieve that. The annihilation of the eye. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Which is important for him. Same with like, yeah, I have Buddhism here we'll talk about in a second in relation to this. Okay, so this is his first three principles. Also, I'm gonna preface this with, this is where we get thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, is from Fichte's concept here of the eye and the absolute eye and not eye and so forth. Which was news to me. I had always been giving Hegel credit for that, so yeah. I'm glad I learned that. Well, and I also, people always say, like, Hegel never actually used those three terms. He uses the concept from Fichte, but he never actually uses those three terms. And Fichte is really the one that, um, it, it's not really about those three terms. He's the one that comes up kind of with this, the, the dialectical process, honestly. Um, uh, at least this evolution of it from Plato and so forth. So this is his first thesis. Basically, in contrast to Descartes, who proclaims, and we're all aware of this, right, I think, therefore, I am, Fichte suggests, I think of myself, therefore, I am. The ego exists through the positing, positing of itself. So the ego only exists because it can be conscious and aware of itself. It's aware of itself existing. So it's not just enough to think and be, for Fichte, you must think of yourself and then you be, right? You exist. So it's important to note that this is an action, right? According to Fichte, you have to do something in order for this to happen, okay? How this happens, we do not know, but Fichte's argument is without this, there can be no consciousness. Without us, and like Jared said, we're gonna just talk about human beings here, even though the argument can be made that like, whatever, there are other conscious beings. We're just gonna talk about humanity for this episode that man is only conscious when it becomes aware of themselves as thinking beings. Okay, this is the empirical ego that I was talking about before. This is the ego that we know, and this ego can both know and be known. It is both active and passive. So it knows things and we know about it. Does that make sense so far? That's the first the thesis is the empirical I, the this sort of the conscious ego. Does that make sense so far? Yes. Okay. Then we get into the antithesis. There is something that is opposed to the ego, the non-ego. Fichte says this is the not I. This is required. The instant that the I posits itself, it must also gain awareness of its negation, the not I. 
That is, it's a requisite of pausing itself, that the ego also must recognize the not I. So, the second that I realize that I acknowledge that I am a thinking being, I must at the same time acknowledge that there are other things that are not me. Otherwise, I would it would be impossible for me to grasp and understand and recognize my sense of self if I also at the very instant didn't also realize that there are other things that are not myself, right? So like I said, you are my, you are not I for me and I am the not I for you, etc. So I have the I and you are an example of the not I um, in, in this really way of thinking. How this happens, again, we don't know. But the very important thing here is that this happens in our minds. That's not to say that things aren't real, like in the metaphysical sense, that they don't physically exist. But in this act of realizing ourselves and realizing the existence of the not eyes, it only exists in our mind. It is a product of consciousness. For example, another person exists in physical reality, probably at least, right? Let's go with it for now. But they exist as not I, as an individual self, in my mind. There's no sort of like objective truth that says any one person is a self. Now, I'm gonna use a really morbid example here, but I think hopefully it will drive the point home. So, let's say, I'm gonna ask you the question. Do I exist? Meaning, am I a self just like you perceive yourself to be a self? To you, you are. Okay. Am I to you? Yes, you're not me. Okay, perfect. If I were to die, would you reach a point when you no longer perceived my body as possessing a self? Now we're getting into a very metaphysical conversation, and, and one would even argue like a spiritual conversation. Um, would uh, I... That's actually a very good question. Your, I would perceive your body as no longer you, perhaps. Okay. And no longer being a conscious being, let's say. Yes, if you okay. had passed away, you would no longer be a conscious being in my mind. Okay, perfect. There would obviously be a physical transformation of my body, right? Things would change. Right. But in the way that we just talked about that, the transition of me losing my ego, right? My body losing its sense of self has taken place purely in your mind. Your mind and your perception of this physical body has changed to in such a way where you no longer believe and acknowledge that this physical body possesses a self. Yes. So. You have become a thing, a thing that is perfect. decomposing and yes. Perfect. There is no definitive moment when I would lose my ego, right? This isn't some like thing of science where the doctors be like, oh, right now he just lost his sense yep. of self and like it's over, right? We go down a path of like the sociology of death and et cetera, but I don't think that's necessary. The change would be in your perception, how your ego has constructed my ego, which functions to serve, to define and to establish your ego. Your ego would deconstruct my ego and your ego would be a changed as a result of essentially coming to acknowledge that my ego no longer existed. But all of this is happening. Further reifying or defining what my ego is. I think for there exactly. I am, Nick no longer thinks, so he no longer is. Right. And so your ego would be changed as a result of right. this like acknowledgement and so forth. The same can be said also for how we construct egos as well, right? So I can ask you also, 
At what point does a child have a sense of self? At what point are they conscious? So what we try and do, or at least this is what I always think of as somebody that advocates, and again, we're not trying to talk about this topic, but like animal consciousness, I am an advocate for that. But like one thing that we do also with infants and children is the mirror tests, right? Perfect. Like, Perfect example. like, so that's what I think about. Now, I don't know that the mirror test is the best example, but both children and animals, we've, we've at least in those experiments, take a little while to get it, but they almost always all do get it. Mm-hmm. Um, when that happens or why that happens, I don't think has been answered. Perfect. The answer is, for my purposes right now, is it doesn't actually matter when you think that takes place. Like you said, many people agree on the mirror test. Many people who are like um, anti-abortion believe that it takes place at a much uh, earlier point and so forth. But the point isn't when you think that is. The point is it occurs at some point in our minds. In our sense of self, we construct an ego in another being. Right. So how does that development take place? And I think that's exactly. where, where we're missing that is like, let's say at one month old, we already know the eyes don't work that well, but let, let, let's say you put the, the infant in front of the mirror and mm-hmm. the, nothing, you get nothing. It's blank slate. But by the time they're six months old, let's say, and again, I'm pulling these numbers out yet, I'm, yeah. whatever, that, that child's now sitting in front and recognizes, oh, that's me. That is me there. That is not right. some other existence. That's not like, like that is me. Or mm-hmm. again, same thing with, with an animal. I, I'll use my cats as an example, right? Like the first time they looked in a mirror, that's another cat. I'm mad. Yeah. But uh, oh, I, a week later, oh, that actually is me. And I've seen that happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's me. I'm not going to get yeah. pissed off at this thing I'm seeing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Inconsequential question for the purposes of this discussion. Very consequential question for consciousness. Because my point here is that The difference isn't, for this purpose, in that other being. The difference is in the way that you perceive that other being. But that's why I use that example. Like, at at one week, I am wanting to fight that because I don't have that recognition. But by a week later, that's me. Like, but I guess... That's not what I'm focused on. I'm focusing on... See, this is perfect. You are describing your perception of that event. You are not, not from the infant on. or the cat's perception. Exactly. I'm watching it. You created the ego in that infant or that cat by perceiving their behavior. But we'll that never only took place in your mind. In my mind. Mm-hmm. But we'll never actually know what happened in that infant or that cat's mind. Exactly. We'll never know. Because we can't even answer it for ourselves. At what point did I become a thinking conscious right. being? Who knows, right? Fair enough. And Ficta admits like we can't ever know that. So Other egos exist only as a result of the action that takes place in our own mind. When I'm watching that cat acknowledge itself, I have now, as a result, created the ego of that cat in my mind. Which has informed me. Exactly. And then has changed my ego as a result. And this is an important aspect of Fichte's thought is the relationship and interaction between egos, right? So like I have now, that ego exists in my mind and that has changed my ego Right, and perhaps in the infant's mind at some point, our ego also begins to exist and changes their ego and so forth. And in fact, it's impossible for us to exist as an ego without the recognition and acknowledgement of other egos. Like that's not a thing, according to this logic, right? If you were born on an uninhibited planet where there was absolutely no other life, would you ever gain a sense of self, right? Fichte would argue no, that it requires interaction with other egos for us to develop our own sense of our ego. So for Fichte, material objects do exist. The natural world does exist. He's not saying that they do not exist at all, right? As like a dogmatic realist might say. 
But for Fichte, they exist in our minds as the antithesis to the ego, right? They exist as the not I. Everything out there that is not myself is the antithesis to myself. It serves to define what I am not. Just like you define what I am not and the desk does and everything, etc. Okay, now he gets to uh, his move that is unique and interesting. And this is the synthesis. So we've had the thesis, which is the thinking I, the antithesis, which is the not I, and the synthesis. He says these two things must be reconciled somehow, at least in theory, theoretically. There must be something which is capable of containing, I'm using the word containing even though it's a little bit sloppy here, containing which can posit the existence of the ego and the non-ego. It must be able to contain both of the things, both the thinking ego, the empirical I, and all, all not eyes. This for Fichte is called the transcendental ego or the absolute ego. The absolute ego can only know. It is only, uh, it is active, it is never passive. So the empirical eye both knows and can be known. The absolute ego, this uh, transcendental ego cannot be known. So we can never know this. It can only know and it knows all of the egos and all of the not eyes. So all of the eyes and all of the not eyes. This is Fichte's move to overcome the impasse between materialism and idealism, where materialism is, well, if material objects exist in reality, and they, therefore, consciousness is a result of those things, the idealist says, material things do not exist in reality, consciousness is the only thing that exists, and material things don't exist. Fichte says that's not true, there is a third which contains both of those things. So the dogmatist in me says that third is just reality. Um, and I get that's not what Fichte's trying to say, but that's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. That's where that exists, like this synthesis between the I and all of the not eyes. That's reality, um, that, that space in between. I get that, again, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there's this like larger transcendental. I, I get okay, that. Okay, so here's my question to you on that. Is your consciousness a tangible thing? Well, I guess it depends how, on how... So you just contradicted yourself, which is the classic like idealist or materialist contradiction. How can reality contain your consciousness if it is not a tangible thing? Yet. I mean, so, so here's where the dogmatism comes in, right? We're all mm -hmm. hoping that one day our quote-unquote, our material science and our empirical evidence and so on and so forth will at some point be able to identify and measure consciousness, mm -hmm. and then it will be at least tangible. Maybe not something I can hold, but something I can measure via a screen somewhere. I'm not even trying to make that argument. So I guess I understand what you're saying, but I, from my lens, what I'm saying is the, and we talk about this regarding ideology, the reflexive relationship between the material and ideal is where reality meets, at least in this point that I'm making right here. I can't hold that consciousness. It's not tangible, but that would be reality, that there is an in-between between, there is an in-between between the material and the ideal. So for Fichte, it's not an in-between, it is an all-encompassing. Okay, so I'm looking at it as the in-between, and somewhere in the middle is reality. He's talking about all-encompassing, which then spins my mind a little bit more towards that maybe, dare I say, Sufist interpretation that there is a larger thing out here that remains undefined. We would never call it a god or a, a, a Yahweh or an Allah mm -hmm. or Krishna or whatever, but it is bigger than us. So that's a perfect segue 
because the logic, like, let's let's go with like the monotheistic, I guess, let's say, like the Christian logic, etc. Their logic is to anthropomorphize the absolute let's just cut let's use fictus term and go with absolute ego for now right right this thing that exists above every conscious being and every material thing that is fully encompassing and all-knowing the christian logic is to anthropomorphize that and identify it as an ego in itself grave error in my opinion right grave error and fictus opinion probably too that's not to say he was an atheist despite the whole atheist controversy that he found himself embroiled in. But he wouldn't say that there that God was an ego, that God was an individual empirical ego. That would be impossible. Right. Because there has to be something above empirical egos. Correct. Right? Okay, good. Now, I have here written down literally to talk about, to help this make more sense. You keep using Sufism. I want to talk about Buddhism. Same concept though, right? The goal of Buddhism is to transcend the ego, right? It is the quote unquote enlightenment is this concept of completely annihilating, to use the term you just used earlier, annihilating the ego. Yeah, one of the differences is the methodology, but we have episodes on Buddhism, Sufism, and Taoism. And so even though some of them, there are similar concepts across all three, the path to is different among all three. So we're not making like some sort of false correlation between the three here. Yeah, exactly. So in theory, right, like, yeah, whatever. I was going to talk about, we don't need to talk about the methodology. It doesn't matter. Most people never give this much thought, like how it's possible to transcend the ego, right? You think of like, well, if I meditate enough and follow like the Eightfold Path and like so forth and do these things, if we're talking about Buddhism, it's different, like Jared said, for Sufism, etc. But if I do these things, then I can transcend my ego. It will have been fully annihilated, etc. But most people never think how is that possible unless there is another plane we're just going to use the term plane there is another plane where it is possible to be without an ego how can that be fichte would argue i guess i don't know what he had to say about buddhism right but fichte would say there is another plane it is in his terms the absolute ego it does exist it's there we cannot know it but that there is a third plane between material existence and consciousness being limited by our ego, to continue the Buddhist example, a third thing does exist. But most people never think of that, like how can you possibly exist as an enlightened being unless there is some third universal plane in which to exist? Right. No, I mean, examples are abound either. Like, I mean, I guess in the overly simplistic, like Western religions, that third plane is some sort of like heaven that is Mm -hmm. defined and and all of those other types of things. In Buddhism, it's way less defined, right? Like it is, it is one with the universe. In Sufism, it, of course, it is an abstract God, not an anthropomorphized God, right? Mm -hmm. Or a oneness with, of course, uh, creation, right? Like that, but that is that third plane. And that third plane is the part that I think frustrates a lot of people, which is, of course, where these very specific um, dogmatic religions come from is they try and define it based on our current material realities. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, from anthropomorphizing God to, of course, creating, um, I, I don't even know, whatever heaven looks like for various people. Maybe it's pearly gates with a dude named Peter in front asking you questions. But mm-hmm. regardless, like that's where that um, difficult task of reconciling like the eyes and the not eyes uh, in between in this third plane, that's where that comes from, right? We're looking for answers there. Yep. 
So for Fichte though, it's impossible, you can't exist in this third plane. Because the third plane, how can I put this? The sen your sense of self, can you cannot exist in this third plane as yourself. That's impossible. Because the third plane contains no empirical egos, right? It's, it's a different thing. You exist within it as your empirical ego, but if you were to give up your empirical ego, you would have cease to have any sense of self. Okay. Okay. There's actually a lot of discourse related to Buddhism and nihilism. We might actually bring this up again uh, later on to talk about those things. And I actually think about this a lot, which is in line with Fichte, which I did not know until I read Fichte, that like absolute freedom would be the complete annihilation of ego, right? The complete annihilation of self. However, I've always thought like, would that matter if you don't exist to experience that freedom? You know what I mean? Yeah. If there's no subjectivity, you don't experience freedom, is it actually freedom? But I think that's a whole other like conversation, right? New episode. Yeah. So for Fichte, we have the empirical ego, which is the thesis, the not I, which is the antithesis, and this synthesis, this third plane, the absolute ego, which exists and contains both the empirical ego and the not I, uh, also referred to as the transcendental ego. I think the term I or ego is probably what makes Fichte so hard to understand because the second we think of like the absolute I or the absolute ego, we immediately think that it must be some thinking, living, like being, right? Which clearly is not his point. Um, and that is the mistake that, like I said, a lot of the monotheistic faiths make by assigning, basically like anthropomorphizing the absolute I, right? Which actually, now that I think about it, also leads into a little, not a little bit, a lot of Fauerbach. Well, and through the inherently like shackled notions of our material reality, mm -hmm. which thus compromises the integrity of an all-encompassing I, which is of, of course one of the great like hypocrisies in many of these man-made religions right. um, that 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 many of their practitioners fail to recognize. But that's a whole different different episode yeah. as well. Yeah, like Fauerbach and others, he's not the only one that has ever done this. Clearly, like argues that contrary to God creating humans in his image that it's very clearly more sort of commonsensical that human beings created God in their image and in this case relating it back to Fichte to try to explain this sort of third plane that we don't know that like right. you said we try to answer this sort of eternal question well for the monotheistic faiths the answer is it's this God this sort of human type thing that has that is all knowing and all being and that like lives so in forth. a kingdom that looks an awful lot like the kingdoms that were around at the time exactly. that this belief system was created and again like it's 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 almost you know it's playing itself out right mm -hmm. there so now this dialectic fictus dialectic thesis antithesis synthesis the synthesis never happens so it never it's never possible for the empirical ego, the I, to overcome all of the not I's and sort of, I guess, exist at the realm of the absolute ego. That is not possible. But Fichte says this is like a primordial, like instinctual desire 
to overcome this limitation. So there's actually a lot of like precursors to psychoanalysis here. I, I thought about talking about this in relation to Freud because those are concepts people are more familiar with like ego, superego, etc. But uh, it just may, it makes it more convoluted. But so there's a little bit of like early psychoanalysis here that, that empirical egos ourselves, we have this desire to be all knowing, to know everything and to sort of fill out infinite the the infinite with our knowledge to overcome sort of the not eyes to expand our existence as much as possible to gain as much knowledge as possible and so forth but that that is impossible that there will always be limitations and it's really impossible because if there are no limitations then our sense of self would cease to exist so this is the eternal dialectic process for ficta it's also why he, like we talked about freedom earlier, his concept of freedom and how we could only ever achieve absolute freedom by annihilating both our empirical ego and every not I, every other ego and every other natural thing. This is, there's also a lot of discourse on Fichte's theory of nature, which he doesn't write a lot about, but the natural material world for Fichte is like an obstacle to be destroyed, but not destroyed in like the physical sense, like whatever, bombing and burning and whatever, right. but to be destroyed sort of on the ideological realm where like I must overcome this as a not I in order to fully recognize my own ego. It's kind of interesting. Um, anything else on that? I forgot we were coming back to one of your questions. Oh, about dinosaur fossils, I think. Is that what we were talking about? We were talking about dinosaur fossils, but we've moved really far away from that. But it yeah, comes back. Which is why I was trying to say, like, it, that's a very concrete example that, like, doesn't actually really apply to Fichte because he does argue that physical things actually do exist, but that they exist in our mind as a result of our thinking to define and really function as the boundaries of our own egos. Well, and again, it comes back to the cliche, right? Like of a tree falls. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, the, these types of cliches are, are, are questions that are unanswerable. I was just looking for Fichte's, like, again, take mm -hmm. on it. And if he says that that's irrelevant, then that's irrelevant, I guess, yeah. for, for this episode here. He would probably argue that the second someone digs up dinosaur fossils, that that serves as a not I to further define the boundaries of their I. And then as news spreads and et cetera, now we all know about dinosaur fossils, right? That it does that for all of us now. Dinosaur fossils, when I go to the museum and see the T-Rex skeleton, that functions as a not I to further define the boundaries of my I. But does that, I guess the question that I have is, who cares? Who cares about our definition? What about the dinosaur that lived? had that dinosaur like that is the proof of the dinosaur's existence does that did that it's not even about the fossils it's about the dinosaur itself mm -hmm. if if none of us conscious beings were, were around to experience the dinosaur in its life nor are we going to discover like the remnants of that dinosaur life did that dinosaur exist that's a question that doesn't really concern Fichte because he's right. not a dogmatic realist or idealist, really, he would probably argue. Right? Yeah, I guess He's... my question was posed, and maybe I needed to pose it better, was less about the fossils themselves and more about the existence of that dinosaur. Mm -hmm. Which we already talked about when we did the you and me example, if you had passed away and you're no longer thinking and thinking. Right. Well, so, it's actually a really good example because Ficta might say, as if I can speak for Ficta, like I fucking understand it anyways. <laughs> Ficta might say, 
the dinosaurs only exist through their fossils as a not eye for us now. Fair enough. Did they exist in the beginning? That's irrelevant. And he would say that that is something we can never know. Fair enough. I wouldn't agree with it, but fair, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, we would say, well, how would the fossils yeah. get there? Yeah. Well, like, that's our dogmatic realism, yeah. right? And yeah. he actually argues that, like, you can tell a lot about, it reflects the character of someone, whether they are willing to give up their reliance on the material world to explain their existence. Well, and the need to explain one's, and I get that this is all a part of it, the subjective self, right? I, I mean, I guess this is where egoism comes from. So, mm -hmm. and, and I guess I have somewhat of a problem with overt egoism, although I would argue I'm also part of the, the, the process there myself as I kind of identify everything that way as well. So, I mean, I'm, there are parts that are obviously easy um, to quote unquote agree with or reconcile um, with current belief systems that we have now, but there's also others that um, just leave more open-ended questions, mm -hmm. I guess is what I've, I'm coming to find in this lesson right. you're giving me about Fichte. Also, like the dinosaur question, Fichte might say it's irrelevant whether the dinosaurs actually existed. What we should actually be concerned with is once that first dinosaur fossil was dug up, whenever that was, and we actually learned and began to put together what the lives of the dinosaur was like, how did that change all of our individual egos? Because that was a massive discovery, right? That opened up the floodgates for an entire way of understanding the not I. The whole world that exists and that existed that are not ourselves that isn't my empirical ego it functions as to further define the world of the not i right fair enough and that that's something fascinating that we should be concerned with whether or not they existed it like, might not even be relevant in that it isn't relevant in that conversation right it's clearly relevant in others but if we're just talking about how have the dinosaurs impacted our egos and how has it changed our sense of self, I mean, it really doesn't matter whether they existed or not if we take them as existing. They definitely exist in our mind, I guess, is what Fichte was saying. So in the reverse, sure. then, then, then the dogmatist would argue, who cares what our perception is of these fossils or whether or not they existed? They existed, and us looking at it through the lens and how it affects us is the problem. That would be like, like what a dogmatist would say. But it's impossible say. not to do that. How, is it, how would it be, you know what I mean? Like, impossible. Well, if you want, okay, yes, you are right from that material perspective. But in, if one's goal, as some of the other examples you use, is to annihilate the ego, then it does matter. You have to annihilate that ego in every conversation you have. So then I would ask you, how important is it? I can't do that. Whether I personally cannot do yeah. that, just so we're clear. If your goal is to annihilate your ego, how important is it that dinosaurs existed or not? It's just a straw man example yeah, that I pulled. Zero percent, right? Like, it doesn't matter, I guess, is the answer. Unless it helps answers those questions about Fick does not I, but then we're back into that kind of, that not I is also defined partially because of the synthesis of the I. So I guess, yeah, then we're, now we're talking in circles. At yeah, this which point. is yeah. the point. The whole yeah. thing is circular and reflexive, yeah. right? Our I is shaped by the not I, and this is a never ending like thing. Right. It's not a it's, it's impossible to escape that circle because a human can never achieve absolute ego like that you can never be in that realm because you would have to forego your empirical ego which is impossible and that's one of Fichte's points is that it is impossible to do that and so that's why it's this never-ending dialectical process which is I think where a little bit of psychoanalysis comes in this idea of our innate desires to be free which are limited by the natural world and every other living being but we don't ever cease those pursuits, which I think actually lends itself a little bit to absurdism too, 
this idea that there's no meaning and we recognize there is no meaning, but we still endlessly seek meaning, right? We realize there is no absolute freedom, that that is impossible, but we just innately desire freedom. And so we constantly seek out this freedom. That's a different episode. I would argue that most of us don't really actually want freedom, but that's a whole different discussion. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I'm going to speak for Fichte again, because suddenly I'm qualified to do that. Fichte might say, <laughs> we don't want absolute freedom. So we accept the limitations put on our empirical eye by all of the not eyes. Fair enough. That we're scared of like the absolute ego, right? We don't yeah, fair. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't even disagree with that. No, fair enough. That's why we, again, even in our, our transcendental like spheres, we're creating inherently are limited because we're scared of that actual freedom. And, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so I'm now going to read. I mean, so let's come back full circle. What does it have to do possibly with nihilism, right? Fichte elevates the absolute ego to the highest level. It is the ego that transcends all else, right? the absolute ego, the transcendental ego. It is the ultimate, the infinite. Not the empirical ego, right, the individual, but the absolute theoretical ego. And that's important here too, that this is theoretical. Fichte might not have argued that like, this is a real place where we can go or like whatever, like this is a philosophical, right, tool to use to explain consciousness. So according to Fichte's thought, at least according to Jacobi, which we're coming back to now, we can only know of subjectivity and we can only know it through subjectivity. Okay, so I'm going to read that again just so it uh, really hits home. We can only know of subjectivity and we can only know it through subjectivity. So we can only know of ourselves as knowing beings. That's what we know, right? at least in theory. I think of myself thinking, therefore I am, would really be like Fichte's argument for a conscious being. What does it mean to be conscious? I think of myself thinking. I am aware of myself as a knowing being. Okay, fine. Without objectivity, i.e. some sort of object, objective truth, we can't really know anything. This is Jacobi's critique of Fichte here. So for Fichte, there really is no object. Everything is a subject. Everything is subjective because it only exists as a result of our subjectivity. So there is no real objective truth. There is no real object, right, that we can possibly know. So we can't really, according to, to Jacobi and his critique, we can't really know anything then. All that we can possibly know is our own subjectivity. Essentially, we know nothing. Therefore, according to Jacobi, Fichte's philosophy is really the knowledge of nothing. We know nothing if we are to believe Fichte and if we are to elevate this absolute ego to the ultimate plane, whatever that might be, we really can't know anything. It's now, very Socratic. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to read another quote from Michael Gillespie, uh, again from Nihilism Before Nietzsche. He talks about he explains this pretty well. He says, For Jacobi, idealism recognized no truth beyond consciousness, and therefore lacked any objective standard against which to measure itself. It thus dissolved everything into subjectivity. Jacobi consequently locates the source of nihilism not in the diminution of the will, but in its magnification. 
in the doctrine of an absolute human will and freedom. Now I'm going to read the full excerpt in the letter from Jacobi to Fichte on March 6th, 1799. He says, Since outside the mechanism of nature, I encounter nothing but wonders, mysteries, and signs, and I feel a terrible horror before the nothing, the absolutely indeterminate, the utterly void, especially as the object of philosophy or aim of wisdom. Yet as I explore the mechanism of the nature of the I as well as of the not I, I attain only to the nothing in itself, and I am so assailed, so seized, and carried away by it in my transcendental being, personally, so to speak, that just in order to empty out the infinite, I cannot help wanting to fill it, as an infinite nothing, a pure and total in and for itself, were it not simply impossible. Since I say this is the way it is with me and the science of the true, or more precisely the true science, I therefore do not see why I, as a matter of taste, should not be allowed to prefer my philosophy of non-knowledge to the philosophical knowledge of the nothing. I have nothing confronting me, after all, except nothingness, and even chimeras are a good match for that. Truly, my dear Fichte, I would not be vexed if you or anyone else were to call chimerism the view I oppose to the idealism that I chide for nihilism. So according to Jacobi, Fichte's transcendental idealism, the absolute ego, is essentially the knowledge of nothing. Any closing thoughts? Uh, no, we are going to continue to talk ourselves into circles as this uh, this this series on nihilism moves forward, and I I'm actually excited for that. I think that's kind of like part of the point of what we're trying to elicit from like this series on nihilism. Sure. So even though we did that a little bit today, I think we're going to be doing it more in and the in, and the inconsistencies for me and the lack of like definition in some of these concepts is the most exciting part. So um yeah, cool. Catch us online revolutionandideology.com. Um, if you're listening to this in your podcast app, we do have a YouTube channel you can check out, Revolution and Ideology. Leave us a review and a comment if you're listening to this as a podcast. If you're on YouTube, leave us a comment and a like and subscribe to our channel. You can find us on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.